Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 16 of Ship of Magic, New Roles. And it is part two of the book. We have a intermediate page entitled Autumn now. So time has passed. We have a little time skip here. And we start in with Althea's point of view. And she is already on her ship, the Reaper, the slaughter ship she takes out of Bingtown. Right. And we know that when we left off, she was, it was from her mother's point of view and she was leaving her mom, making sure that her mom would vouch for the promise Kyle made. Yep. So she's made good on that and tried to find a ship to get a commendation from a ship's captain so she can bring it to the trader council and get her ship back. But it's not going as easily as she thought it would. She is moonlighting as the ship's boy. She's pretending to be a 14-year-old boy because of her slight frame and her relative strength. And we kind of get through a lot of these pages with her describing that she's just not as good as she thought she was as a sailor. Right. And there's a couple of things pointed out that she is bone-tired. They're in the middle of a storm right now. And she says she had stopped thinking at all, only moving to obey bellowed commands, which I highlighted specifically because it reminded me of what Kyle was saying about Wintro. He kind of had to do. And we kind of talked about it, that Kyle was kind of right in that. As a sailor, you have to obey commands immediately without questioning to, uh, to save people's lives at some points. And that's kind of what Althea's (laughs) moving into right now. Right. And I think this mindlessness of the tasks is something that she wasn't aware was part of it. Later, she talks about why, but for now, she's just going through the motions, basically. And she talks about how surprising it is how fast your body and muscle memory can take over and get a task done without you really needing to put thought to it. Right, exactly. And yet... Despite all that, and despite knowing the individual tasks very well, she always seems to lag behind the others. Specifically, she's up in the rigging right now, and she says she made her slow way down, the last to be clear of the rigging as always. The others had passed her on the way down and were most likely already below. Reller, one of the crewmates, had even bothered to ask her if she was in trouble, marked him as far more considerate than the rest. She had no idea why the man seemed to keep an eye on her, but she felt at once grateful and humiliated by it. Just kind of keeping track that she's always kind of lagging slightly behind all the others, and it's really bringing down her self-esteem about what kind of sailor she is. Right. It's a really hard work, and she isn't keeping up the way she thought. Yeah, she even remarks later on saying, despite her best efforts, her inexperience on such a vessel, the slaughter ship, was multiplied by the lesser size of her body. This was not a merchant trader. The captain's objective was not to get swiftly from one place to another to deliver goods, but to cruise a zigzag path looking for prey. It was a lot larger of a crew um, because they had to have people manning all of the rigging and also extra people to hunt and skin and be able to pack all of their goods at the end of their journey. And it's very dangerous as well. So it's very crowded. It's less clean. And 
even though she's holding fast for resolutions to learn fast and, and do well, she understands that just her determination alone can't make her the best sailor in this ship. She knew in some dim back part of her mind that she had vastly improved her skills and stamina since signing on to the Reaper. She also knew that what she had achieved was still not enough to make what her father would have called a smart lad. Her purposefulness had wallowed down into despair. Then she had lost even that. Now she survived from day to day and thought of little more than that. Right, so life is hard and tasks are even harder. It's, I think, more frustrating for her because she knows that even at the level she's at, it's not something her father would approve of as a ship's boy. Well, maybe approve of, but not praise. Right. That, you know, she could, she feels as though she should have been able to do better. And I think it's really sad that she has to like feel this much self-doubt. And I mean, I'm sure it's multiplied by the fact that she is a ship's boy technically in this moment. And she's probably not really getting the good tasks. And Well, she specifically isn't getting the good tasks. Right. And she's not really probably getting a ton of praise. And people probably aren't being very friendly to her. So that would be a really foreign feeling of she's now gone from the top to the very bottom. And almost worse than the bottom (laughs) in some ways. Because... She just can't, there's nothing there. There's nobody there to be her friend, I guess. She's one of three ship's boys on the Reaper, but the other two are younger relatives of the captain. So they get the easier tasks and she gets the tasks of, you know, hauling buckets of slush and tar, messy cleanups, that sort of thing. Anything that needs an extra hand, she's kind of put onto it. She says she has never worked so hard in her life. And there's a, in the middle of the storm for three solid days, so she is bone tired. And before she says, before the current storm began, Althea had naively believed it would not get much worse. The experienced hands seemed to accept it as part of the normal season on the outside. Outside is capitalized because it's outside of the main passage, I'm guessing, outside of that main traveled path through the pirate isles, right. things like that. So it's, you know, much more open seas and actual ocean storms and things like that Mm -hmm. so they so she is very very overwhelmed by this situation bone tired working harder than she ever has and then the storm is hit as well so she's kind of an automaton right now just going through her tasks when she's told not really thinking just a zombie on her feet but her feet and hands are obeying all the tasks right no and it's definitely a hard task i mean Especially thinking about trying to tie ropes or do anything that was like hard labor in the middle of the sea with a giant storm. Right. While you're clinging to the rigging. (laughs) Right. So that you don't fall overboard. Like that's really hard. I think the fact that she has done this much without dying should be a testament to the fact that she wasn't useless. Like Kaya likes to pretend she was like, there's no way if she was truly useless And had nothing to stand on her own with. There's no way she could have survived this. Right. And I think with her self-pity, she kind of overlooks that fact because she's not the best. And so therefore it's not good enough. Right. Yeah. So 
in her estimation, before all of this started, she was as good as any other sailor could immediately take over as captain, perfect sailor, whatever. Kyle, she he thinks that she was absolute garbage, zero worth as a sailor. She gets onto this ship thinking that she will, you know, stand out, maybe climb the ranks, earn a good commendation from the captain. It's a lot harder and she's not as good as she thought. So she immediately thinks that she is nothing. She is right. worse than useless or whatever, worse than useless. But she's keeping up, just not as swiftly, you know? We get to see a little bit of that in Brashen's point of view in a little bit too. But in her estimation, she is just proving Kyle right right now. And it's just swinging too wildly back and forth on that needle right there. Right. She's somewhere in the middle. She's a good sailor, just not seasoned. And she's in the correct role of a ship's boy right now. She didn't have that experience and that, you know, her her muscles and her her body clock for the shifts and things just right. wasn't acclimated to an actual sailor's life. So being the ship's boy is actually a really good thing for her. Right. And I also think as much as I hate the the fact that she had to go onto this dangerous, stinky, gross ship to do it, I think it does still give her a really good life lesson that she wouldn't have got if Kyle would have given her a chance. Right. Like, I feel like it would have been too easy to say, oh, this is hard because Kyle's making it needlessly hard mm-hmm. instead of, oh, this is hard because I'm not as good as I thought I was and I have to get better. Like, I don't think there would have been that drive to prove herself as firm and as big of a plot point in her mind if it would have been under Kyle's direction. Kind of a similar realization if she was in the same situation as Wintro comes to later on that, yeah, Torg is a bully, but he's not just doing this to be mean to you. He's also teaching you. Right. I think it would be the same situation if Althea was on Vivacia still. Mm -hmm. Be like, yeah, Kyle is just mean and he's making me do all the the bad work and making it worse. Right. No, I definitely think... That it is good that she is not on Kyle's ship. I wish she could have gone on a different ship. But this is also good, too. It's building her knowledge of working on a ship and getting her stronger. Mm -hmm. Even if that doesn't necessarily hold up against men that are basically twice her size. Right. So she is climbing down the rigging and Reller has stayed on deck, that aforementioned crewmate. And he says, Ath, boy, best get a move on while, if you want your share of mess tonight, let alone to eat it while it's still got a breath of warm in it. Ruller's words had more than a bit of threat to them, but despite that tone, the old hand stayed on deck, watching her until she gained his side. Together they went below, sliding the hatch shut behind them. So she has mentioned a few times Ruller is kind of keeping an eye on her, and that's very considerate and more considerate than other sailors um, are usually want to do. So she's mentioned him a few times. She goes below. She is done with her tasks for now, is going to get her dinner and kind of splashes water on her face, takes off her sopping wet clothes and puts on only damp ones, you know, right? kind of settles in. And I do want to say that I think Reller's attention that he's giving Althea is pretty easy to spot as odd, even if you're a first-time reader. Right. It's it's repeated multiple times. Right. So clearly there's something you should be noticing. And I think as a rereader, you can tell that it's not necessarily altruistic. And 
that there's like something deeper going on there. It kind of feels like he's just trying to get favor with Brashen. But I don't know. I think it's it's an interesting thing to see Althea cling to this kindness. And I wonder if she wasn't being treated treated so horribly by everyone else if she would take this quote unquote, I guess, kindness from Reller. It's not necessarily that she's being treated terribly by everybody else, but she's a ship's boy, right? Like it's Well, like it kind of sounds like being a ship's boy is awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I guess that we don't know how the other ship's boys are treated because they seem to get special treatment. But at least for Althea, she mentions a lot of times a lot of like, I have to do this because otherwise I'll get physically beaten. And I feel like that's such a rough thing to have to go through. Like, I'm wondering how many times she had to get hit to learn that lesson. You know what I mean? Yeah. It does seem kind of typical, though, like especially I know Torg's a bully, but what Wintrow's going through and right. Mild seems to, and all the other crew members seem to take that in stride. So I I think it's just kind of a backwards way that the ship's life is, sailor's life. I guess. But either way, his kindness does stand out. She describes the Reaper a little bit, that it is overcrowded, that there are no quarters crews. Um, their crew quarters, excuse me. So the sailors just kind of have to grab a spot and find a place to sleep for the night. And there are sometimes fistfights over the best spots, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a small area that they kind of cleared out for the main area that they gather, whatever, and they eat. So she kind of heads that way. And she describes them getting food and she notes that Reller's threat wasn't idle because the sailors don't, they're not there to take one slice of pizza to make sure everybody gets a slice of pizza. They're going to grab the four that they want and then screw anybody else who comes behind them and wants pizza as well. Basically, you know? yeah. So she understands that. And as ship's boy, she knows she can't make a complaint, even though Reller is taking his sweet time scooping as much of the stew as he wants. She's just patiently waiting for the scraps. And she knows otherwise, if she complained, she'd probably get a cuff and that's all for dinner. Right. And she does make mention that it's clear that he's trying to bait her into complaining, which I think, again, that doesn't seem like a nice thing. Like he's looking for an excuse to hit her. And she's like, gosh, isn't he so nice? He's like kind of being kind. Like, no, Althea, he's not. (laughs) He seems like a total jerk. But anyway, everybody knows ship's boy. You don't really need a reason to hit because they're the lowest on the totem pole. Mm-hmm. They need to get toughened up. Right. Work your way up, you know. I do want to say that it does mention that when she comes inside from the rain, she takes off an oil skin that she won in a gambling match with another yep. crewmate named Oyo. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting that we still see that although Althea seems very miserable and in this moment, it's still she's still thriving. Like she's enjoying yeah. her time. She's not sitting in the corner twiddling her thumbs, being like, "Oh, I hate this place." Like Wintro kind of is. Right. She's still trying to become part of the ship's crew. She's way more used to how it works right. than Wintro ever was or True. will be. And she wants to be there, and he yeah. doesn't. So true. 
So she gets the last of it, gets the kettle, and Reller tells her to they go clean it up and then bring it back to the cook's quarters. So she knows she has a task to do after she goes back to her little bunk's bunk area and cleans up the kettle, the remaining food. She describes that she has a good place, all things considered. She had wedged her meager belongings up in a place where the curve of the hall met the deck above. It made it near impossible to stand upright. Here she had slung her hammock. No one else could have curled himself small enough to sleep comfortably there. She had found she could retreat there and be relatively undisturbed while she slept. No one was brushing past her in wet rain gear. So she took the kettle to her corner and settled down with it. So she she knows notices that the the stew isn't or the soup isn't hot really anymore, but it's not cold and it feels really good and tastes really good after her hard day at work. Make sure she scrapes everything out of it and then she's ready to bring it back across the deck to the cook's quarters, except, you know, exhaustion starts to set in a little bit. <laughs> I do want to say that this soup sounds disgusting. <laughs> that she talks about how you can tell it's not warm because the fat has globbed up and become chunky. Yeah. Which, like, at that point, I feel like it's not safe to eat from a food eat. safety standard. Like, how long has that soup been off of heat? I don't know, because you're not supposed to leave stuff like it's outside fine. of cooking temperature, like for vi- more than two hours, I'm pretty sure. It's fine. It, ooh, yucky. No. <laughs> um, ooh, especially something with meat in it. Ooh, I don't I think don't there know. was meat in it. Then why is there fat in it? You can use lard or something. Enough lard? To, to cook something? Yeah. Well, what are you cooking then? I've never cook seen lard be put in soup. You know, render out the vegetables. Fry them up or something, you know. You think the chef's doing that much? <laughs> you think he's using meat? Fair enough. <laughs> Touche. I don't know. Whatever. Either way, the soup sounds disgusting, and Althea's so hungry and tired that she doesn't care. So she is very exhausted after she eats. She has cleaned and scraped out the rest of this kettle, and still knows that she needs to bring it across the deck. Uh, tonight before she falls asleep because otherwise it would seem as if she was shirking her tasks. She thought Reller himself might turn a blind eye to her, you know, leaving that alone. But if he did not, or if the cook complained, she could catch the end of a rope for it. She couldn't afford that. With a sound that could have been a whimper, she crept from her sleeping space with the kettle cradled in her arms. She had to brave the stormwashed deck again to reach the galley. She made it in two dashes holding on to the kettle as tightly as she held on to the ship. If she let something like that wash overboard, she knew they'd make her wish she'd gone with it. When she got to the galley door, she had to kick and beat on the door. The fool cook had secured it from inside. When he did let her in, it was with a scowl. Wordlessly, he, she offered the kettle and tried not to look longingly at the fire in its box beside behind him. If you were favored by the cook, you could stay long enough to warm yourself. The truly privileged could hang a shirt or a pair of trousers in the galley where they actually dried completely. Althea was not even marginally favored. The cook gestured her out the door as soon as she could uh, set the kettle down. So she heads over there, turns it in, and miserably has to turn back around and cross the deck once again. And we again have this telling of the kind of cruel place that this ship's deck is. There's mention of if she doesn't, 
get this kettle put away in time, there's a potential that she will be whipped for not, for, I guess, being lazy. And she also talks about how if she loses the kettle, she's going to be beat so bad she'll wish she's dead. And uh, I, I don't think that's... I, I or think no, they, they're just going to do something that would make her wish she was dead. Yeah. And especially because she mentions she can't afford to get, you know, what is it? The, the end of the rope or something like that. It's because she is hiding that she's a woman, right? Right. So I think any sort of public discipline like that she can't afford. Plus she wants a commendation and the ship's ticket at the end. Right. But still, like the fact that that's just a commonplace thing that she knows will happen if she messes up for stuff that isn't really that big of a deal. That's saying something about how the ship is run, right? Even if she's never experienced the end of a rope herself, yeah. somebody has. So she knows that is a punishment that they would use on her. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. So I think that's really telling about the ship and really speaks to the difference between the captain her father was and how kind of a lot of other ships run. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, she's not really surprised by the punishments at all, but it was made mention early on in this book that Efren was pretty unique in not having that happen. He would just put him off the ship at the next stop. Right. So she has to make a return trip back across the deck, but she misjudges her timing. Later, she would blame it on the cook for turning her so swiftly out of the galley. She thought she could make it in one dash. Instead, the ship seemed to dive straight into a mountain of water. She felt her desperate fingers brush the line she lunged for, but she did not make good her hold. The water simply swept her feet from out from under her and rushed her on her belly across the deck. She kicked and struggled wildly, trying to claw some kind of hold on the deck with fingers and toes. The water was in her eyes and up her nose. She could not see nor find breath to shout for help. An eternal instant later, she was slammed onto the ship's railings. She took a glancing blow to the side of her head that rang darkness before her eyes and nearly tore her ear off. For a brief moment, she knew nothing but to hold tight to the railing with both hands as she lay belly down on the swamped deck. Water rushed past her in its hurry to be overboard. She clung to the ship, feeling the seawater cascade past her, but unable to lift her head high enough to get a clear breath. She knew, too, that if she waited until the water was completely gone before she got to her feet, the next wave would catch her as well. If she didn't manage to get up now, she wasn't ever going to get up. She tried to move, but her legs were jelly. A hand grabs, grabbed the back of her shirt, hauled her choking to her knees. You're plugging the scuppers, someone exclaimed in disgust. She hung from his grip like a drowned kitten. There was air against her face, mixed with driving rain, but before she could take it in, she had to gag out the water in her mouth and nose. Hang on, she heard him shout, and he, she wrapped her legs and arms about his legs. She managed one gargly breath of air before the water hit them both. She felt his body swing with the impact of the water and thought surely they would both be torn loose from the ship. But an instant later, as the water retreated, he struck her a cuff to the side of the head that loosened her grip on him. Suddenly, he was moving across the deck, dragging her behind him, her pigtail and shirt caught together in his grip. He hauled her up a mast. As soon as her feet and hands felt the familiar rope, they clung to them and propelled her up of their own accord. The next wave that rushed over the deck went beneath her. She gagged and then spat a quantity of seawater into it. She blew her nose into her hand and shook it clean. 
With her first lungful of air, she said, Thank you. And we meet Brashen. Right. So that was a close one for Althea. She almost went overboard. Yeah, definitely. But luckily Brashen was there and he stopped that from happening. Although I don't, from the sounds of it, I don't think it was his intention to save the life of whoever was I going it, overboard. I think it was. You think so? Yeah. I don't know. He just seems so angry. Yeah, he's he's the mate on this ship. He's got to be angry at whatever deckhand is stupid enough to <laughs> slip and fall and make him do something foolhardy, you know? I guess. I don't know. Just the way he talks to her afterwards where he's like, you stupid little deck rat. You damn near got us both killed. Anger and fear vied in the man's voice. I know. I'm sorry. She spoke no louder than she had to in order to be heard through the storm. Sorry? I'll make you a sight more than just sorry. I'll kick your ass till your nose bleeds. He lifted his fist, and Althea braced herself to take the blow. She knew that by the ship's custom, she had it coming. But after a moment, it did not land. She opened her eyes. Brashen peered at her through the darkness. He looked more shaken than he had when he'd first dragged her up from the water. Damn you, I didn't even recognize you. Like, that doesn't really seem like he was trying to help and was being chivalrous to, like, a stranger. He's about to beat the crap out of her. Yeah, for making him do that. For making him save the the sailor. I guess, but, like, that person almost died. If you didn't want to help him, don't help him. Don't take him out and then make them almost die again. What the heck? (laughs) He's not going to beat her to death. No, but, like... give her a hit, you know? Or two or three until her nose bleeds. I guess that could be one hit, but still, I don't know. It just seems so violent and awful. And especially knowing it's coming from Brash and it's really weird because I I just don't think you're grasping what Robin Hobb is putting forward as like sailor mentality and environment. No, because supposedly Brashen has learned his ways from Efren and now he's a nice guy or whatever. Yeah, he is. But this is an Efren ship and he is a mate and he is used to managing people. So he knows he has to fit his style to this ship. And this ship is a slaughter ship that has people that don't really know what they're doing. So he's scared himself because he's in charge of these people. He has to save one of them. And he's like, you're going to learn your lesson. Why would you do this? And why would you make me save you when we almost died because of it? You know? No. (laughs) No, I just don't, like, it just feels so... I get, like, I get that he has to match his style to the ship or whatever, but there's nobody around. And I guess, like, he realizes it's Althea and stops, but if it wasn't Althea, if it was one of the other ship's boy, he would have just beat him up. You know what I mean? Like, for almost drowning in the middle of a storm? Like, that's, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. I don't feel like... It's justified. Well, it's also irresponsible of the sailor, right? If he was watching Althea, she may try to make a dash across the deck in one go instead of two that was safer. So, like, if you're being irresponsible or selfish in your actions, even though you almost died, that's something that puts the whole crew at at a disadvantage, right? Even if you die, you're then short a crew member, short a person on shift, Somebody else could get injured or hurt the next shift because you're down a member. I suppose. I just feel like it's so different from the Brashen that we've known up until this point. 
that it's hard for me to like accept how mean he is in this moment. <laughs> and sure he softens, but only because it's Althea. Like if it was anybody else, he would still have been that way. And I think it just as like, I don't know. I feel like there's something in there that a better person could pick out of like commentary on good men turning bad under the right type of authority. But <laughs> I don't know. It just, well, we've talked about that too, right? Cause Efren was his moral guidepost, basically right. his anchor. And without him there, yeah, Brashen is just trying to make a living and kind of be a sailor and, and move on. But he doesn't have that person kind of guiding him. He has Althea on the boat, which definitely reminds him to that task. But as the book goes on and the books go on, he gradually slips more and more until he gets back to a captain position with Paragon. Right. So it it is a slide for him gradually, right? right. I don't know. I just like, it makes me sad, I guess, because I want Brashen to be a better person overall. And I feel like the idea that you have to have somebody showing you how to be a nice person to be able to actively be a nice person or like somebody in power being a good person so that you can also be a good person makes me sad. Cause like, can't you just be really good at your job and a nice person? And even if you're not captain, like he's first mate, why does he have to do violence just cause that's what everybody else is doing? Why can't that just be a different way that he, cause he wouldn't be respected. He probably wouldn't have gotten to mate. <laughs> they wouldn't have trusted him, you know? I don't know. I just You're just too idealistic. Yeah, I one guess man so. can make a change of the whole temperament of the boat. Well, probably. I would. I would like that too. You know, in a different than Robin Hobb book. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> and I mean, to be fair, one man did change that uh, the temperament of a whole boat when it was Captain Vestrit, oh, but he's also captain, captain yeah. so. And he could pick and choose who he had on board. Right. And as well, we'll get into where all all the sailors came from in a bit, but in Brashen's point of view. Right. I don't know. I just don't like it, I guess. I think it's because I've been so easy on Brashen and Brashen's been so easy to like comparatively to everybody else. Oh, yeah. That seeing this first real slip of character is like, oh, Brashen, no. (laughs) No, no one so far that we have met is likable in these books or in this book. Everyone, well, they're they're likable, but all of them have some sort of quality that makes you go, Yeah, fair. I don't think I'd want to be friends with any of these people IRL. Efren sounds like a great person. Yes, had mistakes of how he raised his daughters, things like that, and how uh, much responsibility he foisted on his wife. Otherwise, he seemed like a great guy. Wintrow seems like a great kid, but a kid who is a self-righteous prick (laughs) and will just preach at anybody super annoying to be around. I don't know if I would want to be around Wintrow at all. Right. Vivacia is young and almost almost too innocent to put any blame to, but she has those like violent streaks. I don't know. It's just like no one comes out clean so far. That's fair. And I mean, same with the other trilogy, but this more so since we see so many different points of view. Right. You can really kind of hone in on how crappy people can be. Right. Well, I feel like at least with Fitz, like he had a good heart underneath and like, sure. He was whiny sometimes and also likes to make decisions for other people without consulting them. But 
at least he like has a heart of gold underneath that, I guess. And right. I guess Althea in some ways has a heart of gold underneath. And and Wintrow does too. There are characters with the heart of gold, but there's just more to push around to see that heart of gold, I think. I I really I'm really curious of what Fitz would look like if we didn't have his internal monologues and we just judge them based on this kind of point of view, the third person omniscient, Mm. you know, like, yes, there's a little bit of thoughts and monologues, but you don't live in their head. You don't dwell on all of your, on all of the, you know, the choices that Fitz has to make or everything that he goes through. You know, I feel like Brashen, Ronica, Kefria, uh, Vivacia, Althea, Efren, Wintrow, all of them have hearts of gold similar to what Fitz had. They all have, you know, other people in mind and they all want to do the best. Even Kyle, honestly. I mean, <laughs> gross. granted, sure. like, I can't really compare because his actions are not heart of gold worthy, but his his motives, you know, the, right. all everyone's motives are for good reasons and they think they're doing the best for people they all just make mistakes and i just wonder how fits would look under this kind of microscope comparative to like other characters you know would we see him in the same vein as like a chade maybe if we didn't get like the repeated thing right be similar to birik where he's just kind of messed up and will kind of screw up all the time but generally a a solid dude (laughs) yeah i guess i don't know I don't know. It's just, yeah, I guess it's very different. Like, I'm not, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not okay with all of the violence on the sailor's world. I'm just very easily saying, this is how it is. I'll just keep reading with that in mind, you know? Yeah. That's all I'm kind of, I'm doing. Right. No, and it's, I don't want to seem like I don't understand that, like, in this world, being a sailor means that there's violence associated with that, especially on a ship like Althea is currently on. But we've had the direct comparison. Yes. We've had the comparison. We also see Kennet who, although he's like a real trash person on the inside, he doesn't seem to have overwhelming violence on his ship. I mean, yeah, they're murdering people, but like (laughs) whenever they're pirating, not like, to their own sailors. I don't think there's... But he also lets Sorcor deal with everything else. True. So we don't know. Fair. There could well, be like whippings and stuff like that. We just don't know. I don't know because when Wintrow's on board, they don't... I don't know. Whatever. That could Wintrow also, also has like a favor of the captain himself. Right. So... I don't know. Either way. Yeah. It's really hard because... I think there's just like so many examples of like this doesn't have to happen. And... I mean, even Althea, the first thing I do want to point out that the very first thing she did was like, thank the person who saved her. Like without even thinking she, the first lung full of air, she says, thank you, which I think is a kindness. And it's like, see, why can't everybody just be kind all the time? It's not hard. (laughs) It's free. It's free to be kind. I guess it's also free to be a jerk, but like (laughs) it feels better when you're nice. (laughs) I think we're a lot of the anger that Brashen is feeling is is written by Hobbin here. Anger and fear vied in the man's voice. I, I really think that because Brashen, because I'm, I'm coming from the heart of gold Brashen where he did want to save his sailors under his watch, right? Right. He is trying to 
be nice and save people that look like they're in danger because he felt he had to save that person. The fear of them both dying kind of comes out as anger and he can direct it at the person who put him into that mess to begin with. Right. Right. That's fair. I guess. I guess also though, like the first thing he says when he like gets to her while she's drowning is like, you're blocking whatever the thing is that she's blocking. Like, not a let me help you or like one I moment. Think the scuppers. I, th- I think, you know, I'm not an expert on ships, but I think those are the holes that the seawater drains out of. So she was kind of keeping water on herself while she was blocking the hole to the mm-hmm. drain. That's what I had in my mind, at least. Yeah, I, I could be wrong there. But yeah, it's a pretty stupid thing to say to somebody. Who's drowning. Like <laughs> A hole in a ship's side to carry water overboard from the deck. Yeah. Okay. So it's not on the deck. It's on the side. Yeah. Yeah. Because she was pinned up against it. Right. Oof. Anyway, he doesn't hit her because he realizes it's Althea. So they sit there for a little bit and <laughs> little pause. And then Brashen's like, so how have you been doing? <laughs> Brashen's voice was pitched low as if he feared to be overheard talking to her. A mate was not expected to have a chummy little chats with the ship's boy. Since discovering her, he had avoided all contact with her. As you see, Althea said quietly, she hated this. She abruptly hated Brashen, not for anything he had done, but because he was seeing her this way, ground down to someone less than dirt under his feet. I get by. I'm surviving. I'd help you if I could, he sounded angry with her, but you know I can't. If I take any interest in you at all, someone will suspect. I've already made it plain to several of the crew I've no interest in other men. He suddenly sounded awkward. A part of Althea found the irony in this, clinging to the rigging on this scummy ship in the middle of a storm after he'd just offered to kick her ass, and he could not bring himself to speak of sex with her for fear of offending her dignity. On a ship like this, any kindness I showed you would be construed only one way. Then someone else would decide he fancied you too. Once they found out you were a woman, you needn't explain. I'm not stupid, Althea interrupted to stop his litany. Didn't he know she lived aboard the scum-infested tub? So what I find really interesting about this conversation, this back and forth from Althea's point of view, is the source of discomfort for Althea is that she feels like now Brashen is the one looking down on her. Brashen is in the position that she always held over him and she hates the feeling. And it's worse because at least when Brashen was under her, he was first mate. Yeah. And, you know, like at least had some standing. So there was some sort of respect between the two. Whereas she's just shit boy. And also just made a life-threatening decision or mistake, I guess, rather, and almost died. And she has to sit there under his scrutiny. And where she's at mentally, it's only coming across as though he sees her as little more than dirt. Right. And I I think that's colored through her own lens of feeling that way about others. Yeah. (laughs) That's how she would have viewed herself if she were in his situation. And so she can't imagine any scenario where it wouldn't be that way. 
mm-hmm. which is really sad. And I think also a good growth moment for her and that she does have to be in what she describes as a lower than dirt position. Um, probably gives her a little bit more empathy for others, but I do do find the humor in that while she's trying to describe this as like, Oh, he's looking down on me. There's also still that level of respect coming through of like, Oh, I can't, this is the captain's daughter. I can't talk about sex right. with her. Like <laughs> She's a big tone trader daughter. Like <laughs> that's not proper. I'll try to talk my way around it. And he's like very clearly awkward. I don't know. Very funny though. So she says, you need to explain I'm not stupid. And he responds, you're not? Then what are you doing aboard? He threw the last bitter words over his shoulder before he dropped from the rigging to the deck. Agile as a cat, quick as a monkey, he made his way swiftly to the bow of the ship, leaving her clinging in the rigging and staring after him. The same thing you are, she replied snidely to his last words. It didn't matter that he could not hear them. The next time the water cleared the deck, she followed Brashen's example, but with considerably less grace and skill. Moments later, she was below decks, listening to the rush of water all around her. So her clothes, of course, are soaked again, and she hastily changed into clothing that was merely damp. And there's another example there that Brashen, and she notices Brashen is very agile, quick on his feet, and can move across the deck, no problem. And she is considerably less graceful in her own estimation. Right. Which isn't super fair because I feel like she's really low on herself right now. Right. right. She has really given herself the short end of the stick, but also, I mean, for all she knows that was hard for Brashen and he was trying to look cool. So maybe he struggled to do that just so that he could look cool. Walking away (laughs) is what I like to believe. And she's just thinking, wow, it looks so easy for him. But I think about like, when you watch a professional gymnast do a routine, they make it look effortless. Like you could try it and probably do it. That's how good they are at something. But that doesn't mean that it isn't hard or that it isn't work for them, that it isn't something that they're putting a lot of effort into. They just have mastered it to a tech, to a level of where it doesn't look like they're putting effort in. So I don't, I feel bad for Althea, but like also for sure it was not easy for him to walk like that. Well, no, but Brashen has been on at least double the amount of ships that she has ever been on and worked them yeah, and worked his way up to mate and came onto this boat as a sailor and found himself as a mate pretty quickly. I mean, due to other things that we'll get into later, but right. he has the skill and for her to compare herself to him is just once again, her being like, I thought I was this perfect sailor person. And then just realizing that she doesn't have the, all the experience of all these terrible storms of all anything, because it's a different kind of ship. She's just not used to this specific kind of work. Right. And I think also not used to having to work a full shift either. Like that also plays a big part, right? Because there's a difference between learning how to do something idly and having to do something to stay alive. And I think that difference is the starkness that she's feeling, but I do feel bad for her to not have to not grasp that the differences don't mean that she's a bad, it like, it doesn't mean she's bad at sailing. Right. She's still almost keeping up with these people and she's like half their size. Like that's really impressive. And she's doing a lot. I think that's, 
it's just, this is her first year, but she really is a ship's boy at that level. Like, yes, she knows the basics, but she hasn't ever had to perform them under this kind of like, no matter what sort of right situation. Yeah. So she climbs back to her bed and again, we get brought up so much for Reller's kindness. So this is like the third or fourth time that Reller's kindness has been brought up, but she is kind of disparaging it right now. So much for his kindness of doing everything for that. Cause it got her half drowned and cost her a half hour of sleep. So she tries to rest her eyes and go to sleep, but it flees before her cause she is trying to relax, but as weird as she was, she couldn't remember how to loosen the muscles in her lined brow. It was the words with Brashen, she decided. Somehow they brought the situation back to her as a whole. Often she went for days without catching so much as a glimpse of him. She wasn't on his watch. Their lives and duties seldom intersected. And when she had no reminders of what her life once had been, she could simply go from hour to hour, doing what she had to do to survive. She could give all her attention to being a ship's boy and think no farther than the next watch. But Brashen's face, his eyes, they were crueler than any mirror. He pitied her. He could not look at her without betraying to her all that she had become, and worse, all that she had never been. Bitterest of all, perhaps, was seeing him recognize, as surely as Elthea herself had, that Kyle had been right. She had been her papa's spoiled little darling, doing no more than playing at being sailor. She recalled with shame the pride that she had taken in how swiftly she could run the rigging of the vivacia. But her time aloft had mostly been during warm summer days, and whenever she was wearied or bored with the tasks of it, she could simply come down and find something else to amuse her. Spending an hour or two splicing and sewing was not the same as six hours of frantically hasty sail work after a piece of canvas had split and needed to be immediately replaced. Her mother had fretted over the calluses and rough hands. Now her palms were as hardened and thick-soled as the soles of her feet had been, and the soles of her feet were cracked and black. That, she decided, was the worst aspect of life, finding out that she was no more than adequate as a sailor. No matter how tough she got, she was simply not as strong as the larger men on the ship. She had passed herself off as a 14-year-old boy to get this position aboard the Reaper. Even if she had wished to stay with this slaughter tub, in a year or so they were bound to notice she wasn't growing any larger or stronger. They wouldn't keep her on. So she's kind of thinking again, uh, relates exactly to what you were talking about. She's used to doing all the tasks. She can do all the tasks, but... She could just move on if she got bored or tired of it. Or if it was hard. And yeah. She didn't have to do it if she, if the conditions were rough because somebody else would just do it for her. And I find it really interesting that this is what it takes for her to realize that she was being spoiled. Right. Like, it's kind of hard to believe that she didn't once ever realize, like, hey, maybe the fact that I've never worked a real shift, like... <laughs> that should be evidence. But I guess if you're in a bubble and you think, well, I don't have to because I'm good enough not to need to. Sure. But also like she is still doing everything again. She has the skills. She is able to do them. If not as fast as everyone else, she's still mostly keeping her own and she's not giving herself enough credit. And I think this idea that, Brashen is pitying her because Kyle was right is really interesting and really shows that 
we're in a skewed perspective, right? Almost everybody in this chapter, all the different points of views have very low self-esteem. Right. And the skew is clear. And I think especially her being like, the worst part is that Brashen pities me probably because Kyle was right. Yeah. And then we see like right after this in Brashen's point of view, which we'll talk more about, that he doesn't think that at all, that he's actually really proud of her. I think it just goes to show that like, you can't really guess what people are thinking. Like you have no idea. And I think the pity that she's seeing is more coming from a place that she's struggling so much Mm -hmm. and that she might be found out. And it's more like worry for somebody and her safety. I mean, yeah, there is a danger to her being on this type of ship as a woman. And if she is found out, it's not going to end well for her. Mm -hmm. So she's, Staring up in the darkness, trying to sleep, thinking, you know, all about how she is the worst sailor in the world. And now she's like, why did I think my plan would be good enough? I can probably get off and get a ship's ticket, but is that going to be enough? It's not, you know, I don't know. It's not enough to prove myself, really. She's she's very down on her whole plan now and just feeling down in the dumps about all of that. And she fears it would be a hollow triumph. So she she also remarks that it had seemed daring and bold when she'd begun this task back in Bingtown, but now it seemed merely childish and stupid. She'd run away to sea, dressed as a boy, taking the first position that was offered her. Why, she asked herself now, why? Why hadn't she gone to one of the other live ships and asked to be taken on as a hand? Would they have refused as Brashen had said they would? Or could she even now be sleeping aboard a merchant vessel cruising down the inside passage, sure of both wages and recommendation at the end of the voyage? Why had it seemed so important to her that she'd be hired anonymously that she prove herself worthy without either her name or her father's reputation to fall back on? It had seemed such a spirited thing to do on those summer evenings in Bingtown when she had sat cross-legged in the back room of Amber's store and sewed her ship's trousers. Now it merely seemed childish. And honestly, she's right. It Probably a ship's ticket or a recommendation from one of the old traders would have rang stronger in the trader council to get her ship back if they went that direction. Right. But I think Brashen, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I lean towards Brashen being right in that a lot of this, the crews would reject her just because of the whole rift thing. But also it's her pride too. She wanted to show Kyle that she was a perfectly capable sailor saying, yeah, I signed on as a ship's boy anonymously and the captain loved me. I became a great sailor, you know, like just, I didn't fall. I didn't use my reputation. This was all me. And she had approved to herself a little bit, but mainly I think it was Althea trying to show it to Kyle basically. Right. And I think that that is admirable. And I think it really goes to show that like when you have the shelteredness, I guess, to you, if you've never really actually had to work and you've always had to gotten to rely on who your parents are and not really based on anything you've done, it's going to be way harder whenever you step away from that. Like, Mm -hmm. even if you're good at what you're doing, just not having the resources you have as somebody who's privileged, completely different. It's a completely different playing field. And so 
I can see how she would be like, man, I wish I wouldn't have given up that privilege because it was actually really nice. Like, of course, it's going to you're going to wish that you would have done something with that. Mm -hmm. And also in that vein, I was wondering as I was reading this, because I think when we first talked about when Brashen said like, oh, don't go being yourself because nobody will hire you. I do wonder if that was skewed because like he that's what he thinks the reasoning was. But Brashen didn't really have a good reputation. I mean, sure, he sailed on some ships first that yeah. weren't traders and then tried again. But still, I think the trader, the like old traders are very big on reputation. And Brashen still hadn't really cleared his reputation. Like he was That's just fair. gone. Yeah. And so I feel like it could have just as easily have been that they didn't want to risk the fact that he was still addicted to drugs or going to ruin their reputations. But to be fair, also, this was the only ship he could find even after the Vivacia when he was the first mate on air because he said this was like the only ship that was hiring. Right. But also, did he try any live ships? You know what I mean? That's true. That's true. He might not have just because of past experiences. Right. So... I don't know. I, while I think that having Brashen's point of view is good and it's nice to hear some other things that happen out in the real world, I do wonder if maybe it is a little skewed based off of who he is. I mean, all, like being a been traitor family, but best also. Best case scenario if she got on a different live ship. Best case scenario for her. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. She might not have learned anything also. Yeah, so. yeah, she might not have learned anything, but best case scenario for her getting her ship back, which we know never happens. Right. But like this task of, yeah, I'm going to sign on as a ship's boy, get a ship's ticket and come back and like, yep, I was a good sailor on a slaughter ship. Give me my live ship back, please. It's just it, right. <laughs> it's, it's a low chance. You know, to be fair, though, it is ex- exactly what Kyle would do because it's to the letter of what he said. <laughs> yeah, it's true. not about the, yeah. the spirit of what he was saying. She just did it to the letter. So I respect that about this decision because <laughs> <laughs> honestly, he deserves it. Um, <laughs> but I do. I do really feel for her. And I get this self-pity and this wallowing happening. Like she almost died and she had to run into Brashen and he wasn't exactly nice about it. So, of course, there's going to be this. And it's a reminder of all the things she's lost. Like she said, without him around, she can kind of live hour by hour and not think about all the bad things that have happened, which I think is sort of her way to cope with the grieving process is like, if I just don't think about it, I don't really have to deal with all these hard emotions. So I do feel for her. And I feel like this would be a hard task for anyone. And she's really trying to live up to impossible standards here. Right. Well, we get a little bit into the backstory of how Althea showed up on the Reaper, and she mentions that Amber did give her a lot of help. So (laughs) she's thinking like, yeah, it kind of bewildered me why Amber wanted to be friends all of a sudden, and now it seemed to her that perhaps Amber had actually been intent on propelling her into danger, which I highlighted because that's what the fool did to Fitz and what Mm. Fitz thought all the time. (laughs) Or thinks all the time. Right. I mean, kind of is true. It is true. <laughs> Anyways, she's like, no, no. Amber had been her friend, one of the few rare women friends she'd ever had. She'd taken her in for the days of high summer, helped her cut and sew her boy's clothing. And more, Amber had done man's clothing herself and schooled Althea on how to move and walk and sit as if she were a male. And taught her a bunch of things, saying that, yeah, I was once, you know, an actress. I had to play 
a lot of different parts of both sexes, blah, 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 blah. I know exactly what I'm doing for all of this. I think that's really interesting. Do you think, because we know who Amber is, do you think the fool has actually played multiple parts of both sexes before? Or do you think that's just a lie? Um, he could have, but I think, I think the fool was his first big character and Amber was probably the second character because I think beloved befriended the satrap before and then eventually moved on his way and then was abused on the trip over and then became what was required of him in Buckkeep. So I don't know. I don't know if he's had the chance to try out many different parts like that, you know, but he does or the fool during his time, you know, looking into the future, the different lives, all those different things would get used to, you know, human condition and how to act. And it was a very conscientious person and um, observant person. So becoming Amber was probably fairly easy for for him. And then Amber, obviously, and now is she's an expert on how to imitate things. Fair. That's, yeah. I do wonder if it's something picked up by Fitz, too. I mean, because they shared so much of themselves. I know whenever Fool and Fitz touched with the silver handprint, they were one. And we know what Fool or what Fitz saw of the Fool. But I wonder yeah. if like part of Fitz's knowledge went through the Fool. Because Fitz was trained on how to act like. True. Act like a woman. Uh, act like a woman. Just hide in general like yeah. all the assassin skills you need to that could definitely be true i don't know yeah. interesting thought yeah so she teaches althea how to speak from where how to act say like don't speak very often a good listener is rare of either sex so if you are one it will make up for anything else perceived as a fault you know become a fastidious person so uh, your habits don't seem abnormal after a time. Just all these different advice things that Althea wouldn't have thought of, really, to really help her blend in. It's like and fit a lot of information. It's also how to bind your chest so that it doesn't look like you yeah. have breasts. And, and, that, and that binding looks like a shirt underneath. Right. And how to deal with periods so that yep. nobody thinks about it and how to get away with just like other things that being a woman you have to deal with that you, that men don't and how to hide that. Also saying, and learn to need less sleep for you will either have to rise before any others or stay up later in order to keep the privacy of your body. <laughs> and this I caution you most of all, trust no one with your secret. It is not a secret a man can keep. If one man aboard the ship knows you're a woman, then they all will. And Althea says, well, that's the one thing that she broke from Amber's, but Brashen has not betrayed her yet. Right. So. I do. I don't know. I do just find it really interesting. All this information Amber has on how to be a man. If you want to be a woman, especially the like line about if you are always overly cleanly, nobody's going to question it if you're doing more laundry like during that time of the month. So just always be cleanly in preparation. So it's not weird whenever you need it to be. Uh -huh. And I don't, it's just so much information. Like 
where did Amber learn all those things to think about for women? And like, obviously beloved is beloved. Right. It's different than humans. True. I suppose. I don't know. I mean, Fitz went in Tawny Man when Fitz goes into beloved's body, Lord Golden's body (laughs) to bring him back to life. He remarks on all the different anatomy there. He is part white. He is completely different. He's a different race than humans. So we honestly don't know. The plumbing is different, (laughs) (laughs) as they so often say. Right. But I do. Yeah. So it's really interesting to think about. I mean, obviously, we're not here to like talk gender about fool. Yeah. No. Fool will go by whatever pronouns the fool is using in the character they are in. And the fool themselves has said, like, why does it matter? So it doesn't matter. But it is just one of those things where you're like, where, where do does- you learn all this information? Like <laughs> to just casually give other people. <laughs> so I don't know. It's definitely interesting and unique and a unique perspective we have, especially knowing the fool and Amber are one. Yeah, for sure. But Brashen has not betrayed Althea, she says. And it kind of makes her go back to her thoughts of Brashen and realize that she did exactly what Brashen told her to do. She was reborn as a boy and not one with the last name of Vestrit. And meanwhile, despite Althea thinking that Brashen pities her and thinks she's not a sailor at all, he's lying in his bunk, his small little closet of a quarters but at least it's a room and just being like man (laughs) i'm worried about her (laughs) right yeah so he describes his little room here and he was grateful for the tiny quarters because he's not you know bunked with the rest of the crew here and he says he was grateful for it even if it had come to him by the deaths of three men And he explains that he had shipped on as an ordinary seaman and spent the first part of his trip growling, elbowing in the forecastle with the rest of his watch. Early on, he had realized he had not only more experience, but a stronger drive to do his job well than the rest of his fellows. This Reaper was a slaughter ship out of Candletown, far to the south on the northern border of of Jamalia. When the ship had left the town many months ago in spring, it had left with mostly a conscripted crew. You know, a few professional sailors, the rest were you know, from the jails or had debts or anything like that. They learned as they went, but some of them were criminals and pickpockets and thieves, and they had soon learned better or perished. The close quarters aboard a slaughter ship did not encourage a man to be tolerant of such vices in his fellows. It was not a crew that worked with a will, nor one whose members were likely to survive the rigors of the trip. By the time the Reaper reached Bingtown, she'd lost a third of her crew to sickness, accidents, and violence aboard. The two-thirds that remained were survivors. They learned to sail, they learned to pursue the slow-moving turtles and the so-called brack whales of the southern coast, and their services were not, of course, to be confused with the skills of the professional hunters and skinners who rode the ship in comparative comfort of a dry chamber and idleness. So they never had to do any of the work outside. They were idle, confined to their quarters, didn't have to lift a limb, but they would soon be called upon when they got to their destination for sometimes even days without sleep. So their time would come. But they were in Bingtown. A lot of their crew had died and 
the rest of them were kind of beaten into a, a, a good crew eventually. Right. So not a great place. And from what we've heard from Althea, um, this is why. And maybe why violence is so much more prevalent because a lot of these men are not free men. Yeah. They're here because they're paying a debt. And now they're heading out to Barren Islands and they had to recruit some more people in Bingtown to do that. It had been nearly the only ship in the harbor that was hiring. The storms between Bingtown and the Barrens were as notorious as the multitude of sea mammals that swarmed there just prior to the winter migration. So that was the place worth going towards for this, and it would be a lot of profit. So they have a bunch of casks of salt filling the hold when they left Candletown, and those would soon be packed with slabs of prized meat with hogsheads of the fine rendered oil, while the scraped hides would be packed with salt and rolled thick to await tanning. So it'd be a, a rich cargo on the way back. And it's, he says that it would be enough to make the Reaper's owners dance with glee, while those debtors who survived to reach Candletown again would emerge from their ordeal as free men, and the hunters and skinners would claim a percentage of the total take and begin to take bids on their services for the next season, based on how well they had done this time. And the true sailors, they would get enough pocket or n- enough coin in their pocket to spend in time for the next trip to the Barrens, basically. So Brashen is kind of wryly thinking, oh, that's a good life. Such a fine birth he had won for himself. Obviously, he's not pleased with it, but it had not taken much to hit, to get noticed for him. So he came on as a sailor, and all he had to do was scramble swiftly enough to catch the mate's eye and then the captain's eye after that. That and the vicious storm that had carried off two men and crippled the third who was a likely candidate for this birth. And it wasn't any you know particular guilt or anything that made him think about these dead men to claim the space, to claim the mate's cabins here that bothered him tonight. No, it was Althea. And I do want to just highlight not tonight, meaning usually it is about the three men who died for him to get his place, but not this time, (laughs) which is a little bit back to this like golden hearted version of Brash. And I feel like of like, Oh, I'm bringing myself down because I don't really deserve this. There were three other people ahead of me. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, like that is really hard, but also not his fault that they died. Right. Like, it's not like he pushed them overboard so that he could get this spot. Or did he? Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Secret Kyle all along. No, it is really interesting and very true to Brashen that he's so upset over things he can't control and is blaming it on himself and like a lack in himself. Yes. That's the reason for it. Like Birk kind of. Yeah, a little bit. So no, he's thinking about Althea and that's the source of his guilt tonight. His benefactor's daughter curled in wet misery in the hold in the close company of such men as festered there. There's nothing I can do about it. He spoke the words aloud as if by giving them to air, he could make them ease his conscience. He hadn't seen her come aboard in Bingtown. Even if he had, he wouldn't have recognized her easily. She was a convincing mimic as a sailor lad. He had to give her that. And mentions that he had first seen her a few times, but had not recognized her at all and had given no thought of it at all. He just thought her as the ship's boy. But eventually, he had seen a rope tied in a specific knot, thought like, oh, that's a little odd because most people do this knot, but Efren Vestret liked this knot, and that's the one he saw. 
And then again, he heard a familiar whistle a little bit later on, looked up to see where she was waving at the lookout, trying to catch his attention for some message, and instantly recognized her, saying, Oh, Elthea, he'd thought to himself calmly, and then started in an instant later as his mind registered the information. In disbelief, he'd stared up at her mouth half agape. It was her, no mistaking her style of running along the foot ropes. She'd glanced down at the sight of him, had so swiftly averted her face that he knew she'd been expecting and dreading this moment. She kind of shakes her head as they walk past after he stays there and he doesn't make mention of anything. And that's the last time that they saw each other until tonight. Right. And see, if we go back, Althea's perspective is that Brashen's been avoiding her. And like purposefully trying not to be caught near her because he's so ashamed or whatever. But Brashen did try to talk to her and see what was going on. And she pushed him away in his point of view. Yeah. Which I think more so she just didn't want him to give up her secret, which she probably was afraid that he would do in that moment. Yeah. But that wasn't like a never talk to me. I'm pretending you don't exist. It was probably just a I don't want to bring attention to myself. And I don't know. I just find that really odd. He says, once he had recognized her, he'd known the dread of certainty. She wouldn't survive the voyage. Day by day, he'd waited for her to somehow betray herself as a woman or make the one small error that would let the sea take her life. It had seemed to him simply a matter of time. The best he had been able to hope for her was that her death would be swift. Now it appeared that would not be the case. He allowed himself a small, rueful smile. The girl could scramble. Oh, she hadn't the muscle to do the work she was given. Well, at least not as fast as the ship's first mate expected such work to be done. It wasn't, he reflected, so much a matter of muscle and weight that she lacked. She could do the work well enough, actually, save that the men she worked alongside overmatched her. Even a few inches of extra reach, a half stone of extra weight to fling against a block and tackles task, could make all the difference. She was like a horse teamed with oxen. It wasn't that she was incapable of the work, only that she was mismatched. Additionally, she had come from a live ship to one of mere wood, her family live ship at that. Had Althea even guessed that pitting one's strength against Deadwood could be so much harder than working a willing ship? Even if the Vivacia hadn't been quickened in his years aboard her, Brashen had known from the very first time he touched a line of her that there was some underlying awareness there. The Vivacia was far from sailing herself, but it had always seemed to him that the stupid incidents that always occurred aboard other ships didn't happen on her. On a tub like the Reaper, work stair-stepped. What looked like a simple job, replacing a hinge, for instance, turned into a major effort once one had revealed that the faulty hinge had been set in wood that was half-rotten and out of alignment as well. Nothing, he sighed to himself, was ever simple on board the Reaper. So, again, we get perspective from the other side, from Brashen's point of view, and it's what we were talking about. Althea has such a low opinion of herself and her own workings, and Brashen's like... Yeah, she's not going to match up with the sailors that are here because these sailors are taller, way more, are physically stronger. She knows her work. She just doesn't look look good comparatively to them. Right. But if it was a crew full of her, like, they'd make it work and we'd be sailing fine. Right. Well, I think also it's more like on the type of ship that they're on, things need to be done at a fast pace. Whereas sure on a regular ship, you need to do things fast, but I don't think it's as life or death. 
especially because they're probably not in as dangerous waters like they are currently. And, and also this one tacks back and forth, like you said, the zigzag pattern. Right. So changing sails all the time, that sort of thing. Yes. And on top of that, you have the overcrowding because they expect people to die and a, a different shape of boat, I'm sure. It's a completely different beast. And the fact that she's holding her own is impressive enough. This is just not what she's used to. And I don't know, it's just like, it's like, oh, Althea, I wish you could see it this way. Like, <laughs> also, I wish she knew that Brashen actually was pretty proud of her for, and now knows that she's not going to die. Like, right. they're not even halfway through the trip, and he's like, no, she'll live. I think that's saying something. I think that yeah. proves that she is a capable sailor in her own right. And obviously, like, it'll be easier when she's on a live ship again. But still, I don't I don't think she does realize that that's also a difference. Right. So Brashen gets a rap on his door and Reller is there saying my pain, my shoulders paining me some because Brashen has also taken over the medicinal duties of the ship. The doctor, previous doctor, did he die? I don't remember. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or, well, he... Was, was lost overboard one yeah. wild night. Yes. So probably. And Brashen can read. The, so he got the uh, the task of doling out the medicine as well, according to the label's instructions, even though he doesn't think some of the medicine does anything. So he gets the medicine that he gave to Reller last time, and he takes out, shakes out a half a dozen greenish pills, put three back, gives three to Reller, and tells him to... Uh, go to the cook and say that you can get, you know, a half measure of rum as well with this. Reller, of course, is extremely grateful because the captain apparently isn't very generous with the alcohol on board. Right. For obvious reasons, I would guess. Right. But uh, obviously, Brashen is in Reller's good graces with all of the favors that he's giving him, the pain medicine that he's helping him with, that sort of thing. So... Uh, we find out that Brashen has been asking after his cousin's boy, the ship's boy, Athel. Right. Making sure Reller keeps an eye on Athel and is doing okay. Right. I also want to point out that the medicine that he's giving Reller is actual deer poop. Well, he doesn't say for sure. <laughs> well, he'd have only been mildly surprised to discover that's what they actually were. Yeah. That's what it says. <laughs> But yeah, it looks like deer poop, which I thought was a very funny detail. Yeah. So it, knowing that he kind of gave Reller the special treatment and also, I mean, not just that he gets rum, but he gets to sit by the fire and warm right. up and completely dry mm -hmm. because he's quote unquote sick. Like, obviously, Reller's going to look out for Althea a little bit better because of that treatment. And it really makes me feel bad because... So Althea's already struggling, feeling like she hasn't done anything, she hasn't earned anything, but here she at least has this one friend on board, and that's somebody that she earned for herself. And then it turns out, like, no, not really. It's actually just something that Brashid gave you to, like, watch you through his eyes. I don't know. I just feel really bad for Althea for that. So he knows his job and does it smartly? Oh, that he does. That he does, sir. A good lad, as I said. I'll keep an eye on Athel and see he comes to no harm. Good. Good, then. My cousin will be proud of him. 
Mind now, don't let the boy know any of this. Don't want him to think he'll get any special treatment. Yes, sir. No, sir. Good night, sir. And Reller was gone. But it also reminds me of the lines that Brashen is saying, like any being nice to any ships, like any other mate or any other crew, excuse me, brings some sort of attention to the crew and think you're only being nice for one reason. And that's for sex or some sort of companionship, right? So it just puts like Reller's niceness in a a different light when you hear those. And then you see Brashen's point of view is like specifically telling him to keep an eye on and stuff. Right. Because in rereading this, I'm like, yeah, he's so nice. It's getting pointed out. And then Brashen says like, if you're nice for any reason, it's because you want to get close to them for companionship. And then then you're thinking back and you're like, ooh. Yeah, a little creepy. And then it turns out Brashen's like, hey, keep an eye on him for me. Right. I don't know. All of it's uh, iffy. Brashen shut his eyes and took a deep breath after Reller was gone. It was as much as he could do for Althea, asking a reliable man like Reller to keep an eye on her. He checked to make sure the catch on his door was secure and then relocked his cabinet that held the medicinal supplies. He crawled back into the narrow confines of his bunk and heaved a heavy sigh. It was as much as he could do for Althea. Truly, it was. It was. Eventually, he was able to fall asleep. Ever helped you sleep at night? Yeah, I mean, obviously, guilt is eating him up inside. He wants Althea to be safe because of his loyalty and his like and his love for Efren Vestrit. Right. And he feels somewhat responsible for her as well, for the predicament that she's in. Yeah. Again, it's Brashen taking on a lot of guilt for himself that has no, you know, impact on him. Well, it has impact on him, but didn't come from him or wasn't caused because of him. I think what's hard about Brashen, which I probably get more annoyed with because it's something I recognize as something I personally do is that Brashen kind of has this habit of deciding what is going to happen. And it's usually not the best case scenario. He thinks that he knows what's happening next and he bases all of his decisions off that. I think we also see Fitz do this a lot and I've also had similar gripes with Fitz, but Brashen in this moment is saying like the best I can do for Althea is to continue being a jerk to everybody on board and using corporal punishment, but then secretly making sure she's okay. And because if I were to give her any sort of special treatment, the only thing people would think is that it's because I'm having sex with her and then they're going to want to have sex with her. And like, they all think it's a boy. And so then when they find out it's actually not a boy, that it's going to be even worse for her. And like, that's a lot of conclusions that he's jumping through that I don't know that he has any basis in reality for. And so I think that's the thing that I get most annoyed with is just this assumption of like my worst case anxiety dreams are absolutely going to happen if I let anything deviate from the path I've set. (laughs) So like, again, I definitely do this practice and it's annoying when I do it too, but like, Nobody else knows that internal dialogue. (laughs) So reading that through somebody else and seeing how dumb it is to think that way, it's like, come on, dude, like you don't actually know anything. And I don't know, maybe I need my own internal reader being like, Emma, stop guessing. Like, you don't know. (laughs) That's just worst case scenario. (laughs) 
Well, we move on to Wintro, who is also adjusting to his new role as ship's boy here. It starts with Wintro up in the rigging. Same with Althea, a little parallel there. But he doesn't like the rigging, as opposed to Althea. He had done his best to conceal that from Torg, but the man had a bully's unerring instinct. As a result, a dozen times a day, he would fabricate a reason why Wintro had to climb the mask. When he had sensed that repetition was dulling uh, Wintro's trepidation, he added to the task, giving him things to carry aloft and place in the crow's nest, only to send him to fetch them back down almost as soon as he regained the deck. So, he says it was simple hazing, of the stupidest, most predictable sort. Wintro expected such from Torg. It had been harder to comprehend that the rest of the crew accepted his torment as normal. When they paid any attention at all to what Torg was subjecting him to, it was usually with amusement. No one intervened. So Winter was feeling very affronted. It's like, he's just hazing and bullying me, and the crew doesn't care. They think right. it's funny. Right. Like, this is the worst place to be in the world. I hate it here. <laughs> I hate vegetables, and I'll never like them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely hard, and I feel for, for Wintro, like... I wouldn't want to go up on ship's rigging yeah, to be fair. No. Like I'm terrified of heights and I find the idea of that really scary, but also he is trying to work on a ship. So yeah. he has to get used to it, which we do learn is the actual point and mm-hmm. probably the reason why nobody's intervening right? because and it's yeah. Wintro does reflect that Torg had done him a favor too, by doing this. Teaches him not to fear it so much. Yes, there is still, he still doesn't like it, but there's an exhilaration up there. You know, there he, he doesn't mind it as much anymore. Right. And he notes that if it were left to himself, he would never go up there. Yeah. So it is a really nice sense of accomplishment that he wouldn't get otherwise. For a moment, he toyed with the idea that perhaps he did belong here, that maybe deep within the priest, there could be the heart of a sailor. And then he hears a small... Vibration of metal, a mouth harp, and goes to the crow's nest and sees Mild there playing the, the instrument and just chilling. I don't think it's a mouth harp. No? No. What do you think it is? Um, I don't know what they're called, but usually it's like a little wooden box with the, like it has like a hole in the center and then there's like the prongs, the couple metal prongs. Hmm. You know what I'm talking about? You see them at Renfair's so. a lot. Uh, I genuinely don't know the name of the instrument. Literally says his eyes were closed to slits, a tiny jaw harp braced against his cheek. He played it one handed the sailor's way using his own mouth as a sounding box as his fingers danced on the metal prongs that were the keys. Maybe we're thinking of the same thing, but it's just. I guess I just specifically call it a jaw harp. I'm not thinking of jaw harp, though, Hmm. because I've seen this is like really random, but I have seen a video where a guy tries out different jaw harps. Well, I, maybe it's not, maybe they're not called jaw harps. See, maybe this is a problem. Maybe I'm getting two things confused. That's why I think we're thinking of probably the same thing, but maybe just different names. No, I was thinking of the correct thing as a jaw harp. There's like a guy that like has a video online where he does a bunch of different Tibetan jaw harps and like shows the different and difference in sound quality, which is cool. Um, but no, that is not what I was picturing. I was picturing, um, I think it's called a finger harp now that I'm thinking about it. Either way, it has metal vibration sounds. Yes, I was thinking finger harp. Mm. 
that he was just holding to his cheek to like yeah. listen to better. I don't know. <laughs> I just didn't read well. But it is a, a tiny jaw harp that you, I don't know. It It is a musical instrument. It sounds weird. I don't know. It just sounds weird to me. But most of the, the jaw harps that I've seen only have like one pedal that you flick with your fingers and you have mm-hmm. to adjust the the tone with your mouth, which doesn't mean that there's a ton of range, but this says that there's multiple keys to play. So might be uh might be a little bit different. A more intricate jaw harp. Yes. I don't know. I like jaw harps. I think they sound cool. Yeah. Little like spring like. It I makes me think of whenever. Like the door stops. Yeah. The door stop. <laughs> but like <laughs> also whenever you like put a headphone in your ear and go wow 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 (laughs) (laughs) like a mixture of the two (laughs) so he talks to mild a bit uh just brief like hey what you doing he's like nothing i'm on watch (laughs) and he's like sort of nothing to watch for and wintro broaches the subject of pirates and then we hear a little bit of gossip from mild saying they don't bother a live ship usually. Oh, I've heard rumors from when we were in Chalced that one or two got chased, but for the most part, they leave us alone. Most live ships can outrun any wooden ship under identical conditions, unless the live ship has a really carp crew. And the pirates know that even if you catch up with a live ship, you're in for the fight of your life. And even if they win, what do they have? A ship that won't sail for them. I mean, do you think Vivacia would welcome strangers aboard her and accept them running her? Not much. Not much, Wintrow agreed. He was pleasantly surprised, both by Mild's obvious affection and pride for the ship, and by the boy's conversation with him. Mild seemed flattered by the boy's rapt attention, for he narrowed his eyes knowingly and went on. The way I see it, right now the pirates are doing us a big favor. Wintrow bit. How? Then he kind of explains that the rumor is, and the knowledge is, that pirates are going after slavers right now. And since the slavers are being intercepted and they're a live ship once they get their their cargo in Jamalia once they pick up the slaves in Jamalia and go to Chelsea and drop them off they're gonna they're in for a big payday right because by the time they get there it will be close to spring which is when they need the slaves to harvest the fields yep so it'll be a seller's market he says and we'll probably make it so much we can go straight to Bingtown and Wintro says that as if some he grins and nodded in satisfaction as if Kyle getting a good price for slaves would reflect well on him. He was likely only repeating what he'd heard the elders of the crew say. I find this part really interesting because this is Wintro's point of view and he's calling his father Kyle in his own head. Right. Not Captain Kyle, not father, just Kyle. It's like, okay, <laughs> I guess if you think Kyle's going to do you good, sure. It's in the moody teenager stage. (laughs) (laughs) True. But yeah, so Wintrow decides to say nothing. And he talks a little bit about how there's a heavy, sick place under his heart that had nothing to do with seasickness. Whenever he thought forward to Jamalia and the actual act of his father buying slaves to sell, a terrible sorrow welled up in him. It was like having the guilt and pain of a shameful memory in advance of the event. After a moment, Mild picked up the conversation again. So Wintro is really feeling the guilt about the fact that it's his dad that's going to be buying slaves. Yeah. Like morally, it's not something he agrees with. Mm -hmm. He's a priest. Yeah. 
he's a human being. <laughs> yeah. Has a conscience. The mild asks him, Torg's got you up here again, huh? Yeah, Wintrow surprised himself, stretching his shoulders and then leaning back casually against his grip. Doesn't bother me so much anymore. I can tell. That's why they do it. When Wintrow lifted his brows, Mild grinned at him. Oh, you thought it was a special torture just for you? No. Torg likes picking on you. Saw's balls. Torg's like, Torg likes picking on anyone. Anyone he can get away with, anyway. But running the ship's boy up and down the mast is a tradition. When I first came aboard, I hated it. Thrashen was mate then, and I thought he was a son of a sow. Once he realized I was nervous about coming up here, he saw to it that every one of my meals ended up here. You want to eat it? Go and get it, he'd tell me. So he had to climb the mast, and even in the storms and stuff, but it was always cold to begin with, and eventually he got used to it and liked going up the mast. And Wintrow was silent, thinking about that, and then says, Then Torg doesn't hate me? This is some kind of training? Mild stopped with a snort of amusement. Oh no, depend on it. Torg hates you. Torque hates everyone that he thinks is smarter than he is, and that's most of us aboard. But he knows his job, too, and he knows that if he wants to keep it, he's got to make you, a, you into a sailor. So he'll teach you. He'll make it as painful and as unpleasant as he can, but he'll teach you. So we get to learn the actual reason why he's getting run up and down the mast, because obviously Wintrow was uncomfortable doing it, and he's a ship's boy. He can't be uncomfortable doing any task on the ship. Right. And just as you move up in the sailor's ranks, you need to have comfort doing everything. You can't be a burden by not being able to do one aspect. And it's her tradition. Yeah. Which kind of makes it feels a little feel a little bit better, I guess, that nobody's helping him because it's yeah. just something that he has to get used to. And that's what Wintrow's kind of like thinking on and readjusting his head, I'm sure, is just like, oh, so they don't think it's just fine to bully people. It's just fine to do this because I'm getting trained. <laughs> right. And like the training is for my benefit. And I think that does help him. I think this is what's missing from him enjoying being a sailor is like nobody's explaining the rules to him. Right. I guess Mild had that little conversation to him last time we saw them together before a ship had sailed where he's like, you know, you're so pretentious and you just need to take it. Like you can't, you can't just keep trying to rise above it. You're losing in their eyes. And I think that did help because clearly there hasn't been an issue like that since. So I think Winter is just the type of person where you have to explain the situation to him. Like he needs that perspective to be able to understand and do it better. It was really like it all kind of comes down to him not knowing anybody his age or not being able to make friends. Right. He just doesn't have the socialization to realize that joking and making fun of you can be, you know, open arms into a friendship. You don't have to get mad about it. You know, the way you react kind of depends. If you can take a joke, people think you're fun. Right. It's just that kind of thing. And his mother recognized it immediately when Kyle was explaining. Vivacia recognizes it. Obviously, she has memories of sailors that right. have done that sort of thing. But it's just, I think the socialization and him being put into the monastery and the priesthood, there's literally none of that. There's no, you know, subtle little jokes or poking fun at each other just to have a laugh. You know, it's all very serious conversation and all very cerebral. Right. So 
Yeah. Those little jokes just don't play off straight to Wintrow. And he's finally kind of getting it being after being explained to it by Mild. Right. And I do want to say that I think that it shouldn't be necessary to haze people to build camaraderie. Like, I feel like there is truth to Wintrow's pointing out that like, Hey, this is kind of ridiculous and silly. And why should I have to deal with people treating me horribly Right. just because they think it's funny? Like that isn't funny to me. So I shouldn't have to put, I shouldn't have to put up with that. And I feel like that's a fair thing to bring towards something. And I feel like that is a way in which to facilitate growth in a community to say like, Hey, I know we've always done it this way, but why? Like that's a good perspective to have to bring somebody outside. Although will it do any difference or change anything? No, probably not. Unless he stays a sailor and becomes a captain and then make sure that nobody's allowed to be hazed. Like there are changes to be made, but I think ultimately in this moment, the best he can do is just kind of learn from it. Right. And, and, and specifically he, he calls out himself saying like, no wonder these people can't think of saw or anything like that. I'm too tired to think of anything or even go through my trainings at the end of the day. Right. right. So what you're suggesting, like probably wouldn't be viable anyways, even if he had a bigger presence on ship, unless he handpicked his crew and explained it, like you said, right. that he was a captain. So it's something that, yeah, probably should definitely change. He will probably want to change it, but it's just not viable right now. Right. So he has to just kind of get with it become a sailor himself and he continues on the conversation with mild and he's, they seem to be kind of striking up a little little friendship here or at least miles accepting him in to the secrets a little bit on ship because he says uh well first of all winter was like if torg is so hateful why does he's why is he still the mate you know and Miles shrugged Aster da he said cruelly then he grinned, almost making that a joke. He went on, I hear that Torg had been with him quite a while and stuck with him on a real bad trip on the ship they used to be on. So when he came to the Vivacia, he brought Torg with him. Maybe no one else would hire him and he felt an obligation. Or maybe Torg's got a nice tight ass. Wintrow's jaw went slack at the implication. But Mild was grinning again. Hey, don't take it so serious. No wonder everyone loves to tease you. You're such a mark. But he's my father, Wintrow protested. Nah, not when you're serving aboard his ship. Then he's just your captain. And he's an okay captain. Not as good as Efren was, and some of us still think Brashen should have took over when Captain Vestrit stepped off. But he's okay. Then why did you say that about him? Wintrow was genuinely mystified. Because he's the captain, Mild laboriously explained. Sailors always say and do like that, even if you like the man. Because you know he can shit on you anytime he wants. Hey, you want to know something? When we first found out that Captain Vestrit was getting off and putting a new man on, you know what Comfrey done? What? He went to the galley and took the captain's coffee mug and wiped the inside with his dick. The light showed in Mild's gray eyes. He waited in anticipation for Wintrow's reaction. You're teasing me again, a horrified smile dawned on his face despite himself. It was disgusting and degrading. It was too outrageous to be true for a man to do that to another man he hadn't even met, just because that man would have power over him. It was unbelievable, and yet, and yet, it was funny. Suddenly, Wintrow grasped something. To do that to a man you knew would be cruel and vicious, but to do that to an unknown captain, to be able to look up at a man who had life and death 
power over you and imagine him drinking the taste of your dick with his coffee. He looked aside from Mild, feeling with disbelief the broad grin on his face. Comfrey had done that to his father. That story is hilarious, first of all. Right. <laughs> Especially because it's Kyle. But <laughs> right. Honestly, they should have done worse, but I digress. <laughs> but it is, you know, Mild little bit letting Wintrow in to the circle, just a slightly bit more, which is something that Wintrow definitely needed. So it's a good step. Right. To, and- to be accepted. And also not shutting him down. I think the last time that they had an interaction like this, I don't think Mild shut him down right away then either, but I think Wintro just didn't have enough experience to understand. Like if it was, you know, a few weeks ago or whatever, and Wintro said doing pranks like that is not of Saw's way, Mild would have shut him down. It would be the same situation, but... Wintrow was giving him the attention that Mild wanted as like a storyteller, you know? Right. And also being receptive. Yes. Anding. Yeah. Right? He's, he's saying, Oh wait, but why? And like asking questions instead of philosophizing, which I think helps too. Yeah. Like there's no, I'm better than you. You should be thinking about saw at all times. Right. It's kind of just two kids telling a funny story that the other one overheard from an adult. Like, and it's silly. It's goofy. Of course, you're going to laugh at it. And it's, I don't know. It kind of makes me feel a little bit sad for Wintro that he's like so adult and this like, I can't believe I'm laughing at this dumb story <laughs> when it's like, you're, it's okay to laugh at dumb stuff sometimes. <laughs> it's like, it just, whatever. If it makes you laugh, it makes you laugh. <laughs> and Wintro can't really believe it still and asks like, you know, why, why do they think they know about stuff like that? Or like, why do you think the captains know about stuff like that? And Mild's like, yeah, you can't be around the fleet too long without knowing that stuff like that goes on. But they probably just think it never happens to them. Which is like, oh, so no one ever tells them. And Mild's like, of course not. Who'd tell them? And he looks at Wintro and be like, you won't tell your father, will you? <laughs> He's like, no, I wouldn't tell. He found a foolish grin on his face as he added wickedly, but mostly because he is my father. (laughs) It's a funny little line that he adds in, I think, probably raised his esteem in Mild's eyes just a little bit there. Right. And then Torg calls him down again to get get your butt down here. I swear the man can sense when I'm not miserable and take steps to correct it. Mild leaned over slightly to watch his descent and called after him. You use too many words. Just say he's on your ass like a coat of paint. That too, Wintro agreed. Move it, boy. And Wintro gave all of his attention to scrambling down. Again, Mild is offering him the olive branch. He tells him like, hey, that's, you're just using too many words to describe what you feel. Just insult him and move on. Right. Like you could just complain. But I think it is a big step that he even did complain out loud and be like, oh, I can't believe he's doing this. I think it shows that Wintrow's also trying and there is that blossom of friendship, which is Mm -hmm. nice. Even if I hate the fact that mild is chill with slavery (laughs) like three seconds ago, but I mean, he's what a year older than Wintrow, I think. So he's like 14 because Wintrow's 13. Oh, right. Sure. So he's like 14. He just got accepted into like the men's circle. And Wintrow thinks that he's just spouting stuff that the older sailors are saying. Like he's a young kid trying to find his circle and be accepted from being the jokester, 
ship's boy that was always beat on before. Right. And I guess at that age, you're kind of trying to not going to have the nuance of everything. Right. (laughs) And you want to be an adult. I feel like, especially in your mid to late teens, you start feeling that itch of like, I'm an adult and like, I know what adults know and I'm just as mature as they are, even though for sure you're not like, (laughs) right. I think there is that like, well, if they're saying it's good, then I think it's good too. Well, Wintro later that night has to do his daily, you know, ritual of thinking through his day and thinks on this situation. And he's like, had he not laughed at cruelty? Had not his smile condoned the degradation of another human being? Where was Saw in that? Guilt washed over him. But he forced it aside because a true priest of Saw had little use for guilt, but obscured. And he's thinking a little bit more through this. And he's thinking of like simply to suffer the discomforts of guilt did not indicate a man had improved himself, only that he suspected he harbored a fault. So he's trying to think what made him smile and why. He's really processing what happened during the day. He says, and for the first time in many years, he wondered if his conscience was not too tender, if it had not become a barrier between him and his fellows. That which separates is not of saw, he said softly to himself. But he fell asleep before he could remember the source of the quote, or even if it was scripture at all. Yeah. So I think my interpretation of that last part is he believes in his heart that that separates or that what separates is not of saw. It's a little bit of a few things in my mind. It's one Wintro trying to come up with excuses to stay on a camaraderie path and not feel so isolated. Right. But I think it definitely could be of saw because it kind of fits in the teachings a little bit Mm -hmm. more. And maybe he just is too far removed from his priesthood to even remember if it came from anything. So he's losing a little bit of the priesthood, but also it could just be a feeling of his own. Like this is what saw is to me and it's not something that separates. So it's fine to laugh and, you know, be connected to these people. Right. I think something really interesting about saw and everything we know about saw based off of what Wintro has enlightened us with is that saw is really multifaceted and that sure learning all of his sayings and being by the book is good in some context, but it kind of feels like saw being a two-faced God, there's nuance and the, this God understands nuance and understands a time and place. And that as long as you're like putting saw forward as first and foremost, that counts. At least that's what I'm getting from (laughs) this sort of, right. I don't know this read, but I do think there is a little bit of showing that he's slipping from who he was as a priest Mm-hmm. And how that's kind of, that is being kind of taken away from him slowly. But it is a mature thought to kind of think on his conscience and be right. like, maybe I am too thin skinned about some of these things. Right. And that it's okay to laugh at certain things. Like yeah. it's not really at somebody's expense. It's at Kyle's expense, but who cares? No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but, but I mean, like nobody was hurt in him making that joke or him hearing about that. And it's not like if he was offended, it didn't happen. 
So I don't know. I think it's good to find that middle ground there. And I also find it really interesting to end on this line of this line of thinking about guilt and how just be feeling guilt doesn't make you a better person that it kind of just clouds your judgment. Like how we saw Brashen. Brashen feels guilt for everything all right. the time. And he's constantly guilty, but there is never that next step of like, okay, but why do I feel guilty? And how do I take steps to not do that anymore? He just feels guilty and that's enough to restart the cycle. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I found it very interesting. Well, this is the longest chapter, I think in the book, I haven't looked at the other chapters, but I hope it's the longest chapter. Cause it's like 40 pages it's or something. 50 pages, it's 50 pages on, long. in my book. Um, Maybe we're a third of the way through, but we're closing on an hour and a half of podcast episode. That's all I know. So I think we should wrap it up there. We jump into Althea again for the second <laughs> time this chapter when we uh, in, in the next episode here. So we'll stop there for now. I think that's a good place to to cut it. Right. All the guilt and going to bed. Yes. All guilt and going to bed. That's perfect. <laughs> As we're recording late at night and <laughs> about to go to bed. About to go to bed. <laughs> and feel guilty for eating too much tonight. It was good. It was taco night. <laughs> well, thank you so much for tuning in. If you have thoughts on Wintrow's maybe wavering faith, or at least his feeling guilty about burying some of his faith, or him accepting into uh into being a sailor here or the traditions of sailors overall and that environment of what we talked about, how violent it is and the, you know, the physical punishments and things like that, or just in general about, you know, Amber or Brashen or Althea's motivations or Wintrow or anything like that, please let us know. We're always available. We're always reading all the emails at isfitshappy at gmail.com. And we, uh, you can reach us directly on our Facebook Twitter or Instagram pages as well. All of those are at is fits happy. So please reach out. Please let us know what you're thinking. Like I said, we are all reading them or reading all of them, but uh, we are very slow in responding. If we do respond at all, we try to talk about most things on the podcast. So if we don't respond to you physically, just know that we might incorporate some of your thoughts into our thoughts on this last part of the podcast. So. Yes. Thanks so much for tuning in. So now we're going to get to the part where we talk about what you guys have to bring to the table. So first and foremost, we want to shout out to all the people who have been commenting lately about how they're almost caught up and they're excited to meet us in the Live Ship Trader series. Um, welcome when you get here. <laughs> yeah. Also, I understand agonizing wait for a next episode or something. I have a, a person who enjoyed TV shows. <laughs> <laughs> they were coming out like old Game of Thrones. Yeah. It's also hard when like our podcast now, we don't talk about it anymore, how many episodes we have, um, but we have a lot of episodes now. And I feel like whenever you find a podcast in the early stages and follow along, it's way easier to wait for episodes. Yeah. Like compared to whenever you binge and you then... binge and then all of a sudden you have to wait for <laughs> one a week and you're like, what the heck? Like <laughs> bring us more content now. Um, 
Yeah. So sorry yeah, to think, people who have to wait weekly. I think this is going to be, if I have my numbering correct in my head, it's going to be 129, I think. Yeah. And I, so I would say 95% of them are over an hour. And maybe, maybe 50% are over an hour and a half. I don't know. Oh my gosh. I remember when we first started like thinking about starting a podcast, we were like, I was trying to keep it around an hour. Yeah. We're like, Oh, we won't go over an hour. No way. Sorry. <laughs> we tried yeah, uh, just not kept, very hard, but we tried. <laughs> yeah. We started reading more, started condensing less, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But welcome to everyone who's catching up. Yes. Also, hopefully you guys like our long form podcast. You're listening. So yeah. <laughs> we'll take that as you guys like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, no. Also, apologies. This trilogy has really turned into a lot of like two part, part chapters. I'm honestly kind of worried that this chapter might be a part three. For the first oh time gosh, ever. It is 50, 50 pages. pages. I know. Like the all the other part twos are like around the 25, 30 page mark. I think 25. Yeah. I, I don't know if any other chapters go to 30, to be honest. There's at least one that goes to There's 30. There's one? Okay. That we definitely cut into two. Yeah. But yeah, no, this just has really long chapters because there's multiple perspectives. This is so... With the split too, this is like part two of the book or setting up the time jump. It's kind of setting up everything and moves across multiple days in the chapter itself. Right. While so, also touching back on the things that we missed. Yes. So it's like really dense. So hard to do quickly. Mm -hmm. So thank you all for bearing with us. And we're not trying to, <laughs> to, you know, like force out these long chapters in we're, segmented pieces. We're just but. adding years onto the end of this series. Literally. For us. So. <laughs> so just know if we didn't, if we could get away with not doing it, we would. <laughs> I don't really want to be recording and editing a four hour podcast every week, though. Yeah. it's a At that rough. point, I just wouldn't edit. I would just throw it up there. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go, four hour edit. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys and welcome to the, jo the journey wherever you guys are in this. Yeah. And welcome and to the conversation if you're caught up. To the fam. Thanks for yeah. joining us. Um, but yeah, so now we'll get to some of the things that people shared with us. I think first we'll talk about something that was said about episode 126, which is for chapter 13. And that was by Ellen. Speaking of part twos. Yes. <laughs> second half of chapter 13 here. Yes. And that's specifically about... Um, this particular episode is about Wintro and Ronica. I think Ronica finally, the, at the end of what we were talking about, where Althea kind of walks away from Ronica at the end of that. Right. And Wintro's perspective, perspective right before that with, I don't remember, actually. What was Wintro's perspective on? <laughs> this is when he was um, oh, when he learning how to... He goes to the dinner with his dad. Yes, he goes says, to the dinner with his dad. I, yes. Just because you make me be quiet doesn't mean I'm going to want to do this. Yeah, right, right. Okay. That makes sense. And we were talking about how Kyle wants to control people. So I think you're right about it's the dinner. Wintrow finally kind of realizes that, like, they're both looking at strangers here. And Kyle just wants to control people. Right. We were talking about Kyle a lot that that That's that episode. Yeah, so with this chapter, I had posed the question of 
If Wintro fit into Kyle's idea of what a real man should be, do you think he would listen to Wintro's plea and let him leave the ship and go back to the monastery? Because I really, I really do wonder if most of Kyle's inability to listen to his son stems from his disappointment in the way his son is turning out, that he's too feminine for Kyle. And so I wonder if that also puts a damper. But Alan had a really interesting perspective where she said that. Just about Kyle's philosophy, basically, of the two sides of the coin of where he's coming from. Right. Of how women aren't capable of handling things and thus need to be protected according to the man's view of what needs to be done. But the other side of that is that of toxic masculinity is that the man in quotes can never ask for help or counsel, but has to be capable and handle anything by himself, which explains Kyle's refusal to listen to people quote below him, even if they have knowledge and experience that he could definitely have used learning from. Yeah. So we kind of talked about that a little bit and I definitely agree with Ellen here too. Like it's that summed up very nicely, but with the question, I, even if Wintro fit that ideal version of a man in Kyle's mind, that ideal version would never want to be a priest to begin with. So he right. wouldn't listen to Wintro besides he's below Kyle in the totem pole as right. explained by Ellen here. So I just, I just don't see that happening. Right. And that, since he is the man, he needs to have all the answers and he right. can't take counsel, which like, honestly, what an exhausting way to live. <laughs> yeah. Um, can't relate to that. Sort Why of, he's complaining about being tired all the time, carrying right. the fortunes Ugh. on his back and everything. Yeah. Like, dude, just ask for help. Like, it's not that big of a deal. It's actually really good to ask for help. It's super good for everybody yeah. involved. <laughs> so thank you, Ellen. Yeah. Thanks for that perspective. It's a good way to think of it. We also had a comment on the episode right before that, in that same chapter, just part one. I think this is where Althea goes into Amber's shop. And let me see. So Althea sees Amber on the docks after visiting Vivacia and eventually goes to Amber's shop and picks out the egg and stuff like that. Because we were talking about Michelangelo's stuff afterwards, the carving of things. But also in this comment that we're about to discuss, it's more about Paragon. Yeah, when they when they were both Brashen and uh, Althea were leaving Paragon, basically, and I think we were discussing Paragon's thoughts as well, because in the beginning of that chapter, uh, Althea had already left for the morning, and Brashen was getting up and going towards town, and he had a brief conversation with Paragon, where Paragon was in a in one of his moods, we shall say, and was talking about ending things. You could just stop. To Brashen. Right. So this is more about, yeah, that discussion with Brashen mm-hmm. and what he's bringing up. Because Brashen is complaining about his life and the trajectory it's on. So Sanja, I, it might be Sanya. I don't know. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name here. Just let us know. We'll fix it next yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> is talking specifically a little bit about Paragon and that scene in particular, saying that Quoting the section of a wild tone had come into the ship's voice, a reckless tone like that of a boy who fantasizes wildly. 
Stop, Paragon spoke the word with breathless desire. Just stop. And they go on to say that it breaks their heart because they think that boy who fantasizes wildly of death is not just Paragon being bored out of his mind by immortality, but actually Kennet speaking, or, well, the part of Kennet Paragon took from him. So we know, as re-readers here, and we've talked about a little bit, that Kennet actually dies on Igret's deck, maybe even a few times, and Paragon always kind of revives him. There's something of Paragon that is living on in Kennet, and things of Kennet that Paragon took from him into Paragon himself. So Kennet is kind of living, forged, but they end up together and can never really truly be whole until they are together again in death at the end of this trilogy. Right. So some of that that Paragon took was that pain, those painful memories and everything from Igret's deck and what Sanja or Sonya is saying here is that they think that small boy's voice coming out of Paragon saying, just stop. You can just stop. You're a person is the wish, the fantasy of that young boy that those memories that Paragon absorbed from Kennet that sheltered from him. So Kennet could grow up to be a quote unquote functioning person. <laughs> right. Questionably so. And, and it is a very heartbreaking realization that you can come to from that. I, I do also think that there might be a little bit of a connection between Paragon being quickened as a young boy because two generations died on him. He came back to the docks. There's just surrounded by death all the time. But man, it's just truly heartbreaking what Paragon went through and what Kenneth went through, to be honest. Yeah. No, it's definitely... Not a good situation. And also, you know, something that's hard that again, like just because somebody is a villain in these books, we're not going to like be like, okay, well, they're excused because of the hard childhood. Like we can talk about that in a separate space than like the terrible things that they then inflict as adults. Right. Yeah. But I think it is really sad to think about just how bad Kenneth's life would have had to been to have left this sort of voice in Paragon. And I think it's a really interesting thing to point out even that like potentially that's why it's a boy's voice. That those thoughts stem from boy Kenneth. Although to be fair, those thoughts are in all of Paragon's voices, (laughs) not just that, but in that conversation. Yes. When he was speaking of the fragility of human life specifically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, so it is very interesting, and I think that's a really cool thing to point out. I mean, a little dark, but yeah. what isn't in these books? So right. They also mention at the end here that, specifically, it's somehow twisted that Paragon w- would recommend stopping to his friend Brashen after fighting so hard to keep Kennet alive, and poses a question to us. Do you think he regrets not letting Kennet die? Mm. And I don't think so at all. It, it was his task. He was bonded to Kennet and he specifically used his life to try to, to try to stop himself to bury the memories with Kennet's, you know, wishes. Right. That was Kennet's thoughts. So that's his whole mindset is like, I just need to stop. I just need to 
be free of all of this. So Kenneth can go on and live his life free of these memories. Right. That's his whole existence right now. I don't think he regrets that for a second because I think that is his existence right now. I don't know. I think maybe there is a little bit of that regret in there of like seeing what it did to Kenneth to continuously bring him back. Yeah, it could be. That like, sure, he's glad that Kenneth's alive on the whole, but also sees that what the expense is and judges that as too high a price to pay maybe for Brashen, his friend Brashen. I don't know. Very interesting ideas. Yeah, for sure. And I do, I don't know. I Paragon is such a hard one because there's so much unique about him that it's hard to really tell how much is like the rule and how much is he's the exception, the exception. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But it did also make me think about how he revived Kenneth with some sort of magic that he has. Um, and I wonder if that's what gives Kenneth his luck mm, is maybe. that touch with whatever, skill is in the wizard wood that was like put into his soul in some weird way. Cause Jonas did comment on episode 127 that he would argue that Kenneth's luck is magical, which he didn't explain. So I kind of want to hear that explanation because <laughs> it is, I mean, his luck kind of has to be right. It's way too much coincidence. It's, yeah. Like the odds <laughs> are ever in his favor to borrow from another fantasy book <laughs> and to borrow from another one he seems like Taverin, to be honest from wheel of time so i don't know everything just seems to work out for him in some in some way he's got magical plot armor apparently so yeah any explanation that that would be interesting i don't know how it would work but that would be interesting if somehow that's well what sprung his well, I think, luck yeah i think about it like how the fool is describes when Fitz like goes against the path to bring him back to life. But to do so, he has to like go into Fitz's body or the fool's body. Fitz goes into fool's body to bring him back. And now they're like intertwined too much or something. Kind of like how Fitz is with night eyes. Like it does something to you to go against the laws of nature to die. Like the thing that helps you stay alive is somehow imprinted in you. Right. Like that magic stays. And so I wonder if it has something to do with that seeming law of nature in it's this. Got some sort of dragon or live ship luck within him. Yeah. Glamour at the very least. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Maybe, maybe that's how he keeps control of everybody and is so charismatic. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Well, Thank you all for bringing those things to our attention and joining the group and uh, giving us something fun to talk about at the end of this episode. We enjoy hearing all the things you bring to us and look forward to hearing next week's theories. 